text for this morning's sermon will be in Acts chapter 13. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 43. Would you stand together as we read God's word? Acts chapter 13, <clears throat> verses 13 through 43. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a, mass, a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. When he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people in Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you uh, suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which they are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people." And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he had spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things 
might be told them again the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Our God and Father, we ask that you would be with us over these next few moments as we study this text from your word. Uh, Give us insights into this passage. Help us to uh, rightly understand what it is that the Spirit of God is seeking to communicate to us this morning uh, through this sermon of the Apostle Paul. Pray that you would teach us and instruct us, help us be more like you as a result of this time in your word. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are studying through the book of Acts, and we are in the midst of the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13, they were sent out by the church at Antioch, and uh, they began preaching through the island of Cyprus. We saw that just starting last week there. Uh, toward the end. They had, the church had sent these two out uh, to establish churches in places where the gospel had not yet gone. And so they go to the island of Cyprus and they preach their way across it. And now we'll track with them as they head to the mainland to continue their work of preaching the gospel and establishing churches. Uh, verse 13 begins, Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So I know there's a lot of uh, locations mentioned there, and you get kind of dizzy after a while. Uh, So I have a a really cool aerial shot that I thought would help maybe better than a map. Uh, So this is, uh, last week we saw the first few verses of Acts 13 when the church sent Saul and Barnabas off on this missionary journey. Uh, They left the city of Antioch and headed to Cyprus, uh, the island of Cyprus there in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and they preached their way across the island from the east coast to the west, about 90 miles across. We're not told how long they were there, uh, but presumably that would take some time to go from one town to the next uh, across the island of Cyprus. And so they go there, they're, they're preaching the gospel, they're establishing churches all over the island of Cyprus from those who had converted to Christ. And then they leave Cyprus in verse 13, what we just read, and they sail from Paphos up to Perga in Pamphylia. And when they get here, somewhere in here, uh, Paul gets really sick. I know that's not mentioned in our text here, but he writes about it in Galatians chapter 4. This is Paul writing to the churches of Galatia, which would be the whole region there. Uh, He says, verse 13, you know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, meaning his sickness, whatever it was, this physical problem is what led him to Galatia. And so he goes there, he preaches the gospel there, verse 14, he says, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. He goes on from there. So some sort of physical issue, some illness, ailment uh, hit Paul. Uh, Some have speculated that it might have been malaria or something, and so he needed to get out of the tropical climate of Cyprus, and so he heads up north. That's very possible. We can't say for sure. Uh, But apparently he was in rough shape here for a while. Uh, At Perga, John Mark leaves them. Uh, You remember Saul and Barnabas had brought along Barnabas' cousin John Mark to assist them, and for some reason he leaves them here. Uh, Maybe he was just homesick. Uh, Maybe he was afraid of the persecution that was coming to them. Uh, Maybe that whole exchange with the sorcerer in the previous uh, passage freaked him out or something. We're not really sure. But for whatever reason, uh, John Mark leaves them in Perga. He heads back home to Antioch. Uh, Then verse 14 says that Saul and Barnabas 
uh, continued on to Antioch. Now, this isn't the same Antioch that they left from, obviously. Okay, so they left from uh, Antioch in Syria. Now they've made their way up here to Antioch in Pisidia, two different cities uh, with the same name, just like, you know, in America, we have this all the time, Lancaster, California, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, same sort of situation. And so uh, don't be confused. These are two very different cities uh, with the same name. So they make it up to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day, as was their custom, they go to the Jewish synagogue. Uh, synagogues were to the Jews what churches are to Christians today. It was the meeting place where the Jews from the town would gather each Sabbath day for scripture reading and for a time of teaching, just like we do here every Sunday. And these were the perfect places for Paul and Barnabas to begin their evangelistic efforts in each town. Uh, because these were religious Jews, they knew their Old Testament, they were gathered there for the, the purpose of hearing someone teach from the Bible. And so it was a, a perfect ready-made audience to hear about Christ. And it was also customary for traveling rabbis to be asked to teach if they were there for a Sabbath meeting. So it would be like uh, in our church today, if a, a pastor came or something, and yeah, we, we would invite him to come up and preach. I'm not saying that for sure would happen, but that was the sort of tradition in those synagogues, is that traveling rabbis... Uh, when they were in town, they would be invited to speak at the synagogue. And so Paul, <clears throat> of course, was a rabbi. He was a very well-educated man. He would have even been dressed in the attire of a rabbi. And so he would uh, do exactly what Jesus did, often in his ministry. Uh, Jesus would travel from one town to the next. He would preach in their synagogues every Sabbath day. And so Paul is following that example. Uh, here in Acts 13, we get an example of what this would have looked like. If you've ever wondered, you know, what, what sort of sermons did Paul preach when he was in those synagogues? What exactly did he say? Uh, we get sort of a snapshot of a sermon of Paul here in Acts 13. And this is what presumably Paul did uh, all over the island of Cyprus and all of those cities that they went, uh, preaching uh, in the synagogues, being you know, invited to teach there as a, a visiting rabbi. He would open up their Old Testament scriptures and he would show them from those texts that Jesus is their Messiah and they needed to become a disciple of Christ. It was the perfect setup to reach some people and hopefully uh, begin to establish a church in that community. And so today we have an example of what Paul would say in these synagogues. Uh, here in Acts chapter 13, this is the first sermon uh, of the Apostle Paul that we have recorded. Of course, it's not his first, like the first time he ever preached. Uh, he had been preaching uh, immediately after his conversion to Christ in Damascus, then he goes to Jerusalem, then a few years in uh, Cilicia. All in all, you add it up, he's been preaching for almost 20 years at this point. Uh, so he is a well-established teacher in the church, and uh, this is by no means his first sermon. But it is the first bit of preaching uh, from the Apostle Paul that we have recorded. So this is the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, Paul and Barnabas have entered the synagogue, visiting in that town. They've sat down. And verse 15 says... After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said, uh, sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So the leader of the synagogue invites them to speak now if they have anything uh, that they would like to say. And Paul has something that he would like to say. Verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel and you who, who fear God, listen. And Paul is now going to recount their history. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, you will recognize this. Paul says to them, beginning in verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers 
and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So there's the book of basically the last half of Genesis and the book of Exodus, uh, recounting how the Jews were chosen by God. They were enslaved in Egypt. God brought them out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Verse 18, and for about 40 years, uh, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So now we're into the book of Joshua, where Israel uh, takes possession of the promised land. Verse 20, all of this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel, the prophet, you remember the judges like Samson and Gideon and Ehud and all of them. Verse 21, uh, then they asked for a king. So during the days of Samuel, they get tired of the judges. They asked for a king. Uh, God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. So now we're into First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament when David is made king. And God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule on his throne forever. And Paul says that that descendant, that promised king, is Jesus. Verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. And so the point of the sermon here is to demonstrate to these Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of their Old Testament scripture. He is the one that was promised, that the whole Old Testament was pointing towards, this promised savior and king who would come and rule over the people of God forever. And he would establish justice and peace over all the world. Paul goes on to say in verse 24, before his coming, before Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he reminds them of John the Baptist, whom uh, the Jews had received very well. They esteemed John the Baptist very highly as a true prophet sent from God. In verse 25, as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, so I'm not the promised one you're waiting for. No, but behold, after me is, com- is one, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. And so John the Baptist had foretold of Christ, just like the whole Old Testament was pointing in the direction of this promised king. John the Baptist, whom they had received as a true prophet, pinpointed Jesus and said, that's the one you've been waiting for. Verse 26, Paul continues, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. So Paul has established that Jesus is the promised son of David, who would be their savior and king. And now he's going to explain how it is that Jesus provided salvation. Verse 27, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. So the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, they did not understand who Jesus was. They didn't see uh, that he was the fulfillment of their prophets. And so they killed him. They condemned him to death. Uh, By the way, I think it's an important note for us there, which where, where it says in verse 27 that they didn't recognize him and they didn't understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath. It's very easy for us today as Christians 
uh, to be people of the book, to read scripture, and to totally miss the point. And so that should be a warning to us that just because we're in scripture, just because we saturate our minds in the Bible, doesn't always mean that we have the correct understanding. They certainly did not. And so these rulers that opposed Christ, they condemned him to death. All the while, their actions in this were actually fulfilling Scripture, unbeknownst to them. Verse 28, though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So this is the message of salvation that Paul is bringing them, that Jesus died and rose again. He took our sins on himself on the cross, and after paying the debt of sin that we owed, he rose back to life. This is the gospel, the good news. Verse 32, And we bring you... The good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so now that Paul has given this overview of the Old Testament, he's shown how all of Israel's history is pointing toward the promised Christ, the, the Savior and King who is Jesus. Now Paul is going to get into a few specific texts. And he quotes from three or four prophecies here toward the end of his sermon, beginning with Psalm 2. He quotes there in verse 33, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We're going to look at that verse a little bit later, but it's a reference to the resurrection, Paul says. God fulfilled the promise written in the second Psalm by raising Jesus from the dead. So we'll look at that in a bit, but for now let's keep going. Verse 34, Paul continues, as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So this resurrected son of God that Psalm, six, or that Psalm 2 uh, speaks of, he's going to receive the sure blessings of David, which refers to that promise that we spoke of, where a king, one of David's descendants, would rule on the throne forever. And so the point is, the only way for that to happen is if this resurrected Son of God never dies again. That's why he says in verse 34, he will no more return to corruption. Jesus was raised from the dead and he will rule forever on David's throne, which means he can never die again. Uh, Paul quotes another text in verse 35, all of this building a case from their Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was prophesied to die and rise again and rule as Lord. Verse 35, therefore he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is a quotation from Psalm 16. So Paul makes here the same argument as Peter back in Acts chapter 2. You may remember Peter quoted this passage, and he said basically that this psalm was written by David, but then David died. Uh, so David writes, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That can't be talking about David, uh, because David ended up dying. He, we have his body in a grave in Jerusalem. Uh, he did decay, but Jesus didn't. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. He didn't face corruption. His body did not decay. He was raised the third day. So Psalm 16 must be speaking of someone who will die, but who will not decay. Someone who will not stay dead. A descendant of David. And Paul says, this is Jesus. We saw him alive. He begins explaining, verse 36, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep 
and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So what David wrote in Psalm 16 has to be a prophecy of Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so here is the point of all of this. This is what Paul has been driving at. The scriptures predicted it all. Jesus fulfilled them all. He died. He rose back to life. And through his death and resurrection, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. If you believe in this gospel, if you turn to Christ in faith, you can be saved. This is the message of salvation. It's the good news that Jesus provided a way for anyone to have their sins forgiven. The law of Moses couldn't save anyone. It only showed us our sin. God gave us all of those commands in the Old Testament, all of which at some point we break. Whether by thought or by action, we just continually fall short of keeping God's standards. No one keeps the law of God perfectly. We're all sinners. And so we could not be forgiven. We could not be freed from the guilt and condemnation of our sin through the law of Moses. But in Jesus, we have hope. Because where we fell short, Jesus never did. He lived a perfect life. And then he laid that perfect life down for us. He took our sins, our debt that we owed on the cross, so that we can be forgiven and declared righteous. And then Paul concludes with this warning. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Don't scoff at this message, he says to them. The same God who has provided salvation to you by sending his son as a sacrifice for your sins, he will send judgment on you if you refuse this offer of salvation. And so Paul's sermon to them is a message of hope and a warning of judgment. I set before you life and death, so choose life. And this provides for us a great example of how we ought to preach the gospel to the lost. Uh, When we're talking to lost people about Christ, they don't need to know first how to have a good marriage, how to live a holy life, how to clean up uh, certain acts. We don't preach behavior modification. They need the gospel. Our message to the world is first and foremost that Jesus died for your sins and rose again. And he invites you to turn in faith to him, to submit to his lordship, and he will forgive your sins completely, and he will transform your life. And so submit to Christ as Lord, serve him. That was Paul's message here in Acts 13, and that's the message that we ought to have today. Here's the response to the sermon, beginning verse 42. They went out, I'm sorry, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. So they're clearly interested. They want to hear more. Verse 43 After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So many of these Jews, these proselytes to Judaism, very uh, devout religious men, uh, they believed the message of Paul. Paul and Barnabas then continued talking to them after the meeting was over and urged them to be saved. And so here we see the first uh, bit of preaching off the island of Cyprus in the mainland. And there's clearly a response of uh, acceptance by many of the Jews. Many people are converted to Christ here. 
and the church begins to be formed here in Antioch and Pisidia. I want to circle back around and point out uh, one theme in the text that I hope you noticed as we were going through this sermon, something that just jumps off the page at you. Uh, throughout Paul's sermon here, he is showing us that God is in control of history, that God is sovereign, that he is accomplishing his purposes in the world. Let me read a few verses again and just notice all of the actions of God here. Uh, God did this. God did that. Beginning with verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers, and God made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. He made them multiply and become a, a huge nation. And then with an uplifted arm, God led them out of it. Verse 18, for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, God gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, God gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Then verse 22, when God had removed him, Saul, God raised up David to be their king. And I, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus. God did all of that. God chose the nation of Israel. God made them multiply and have success. God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. God put up with them as he led them through the wilderness. God destroyed the wicked nations of Canaan, and God gave their land to Israel as an inheritance. Then God gave them judges to rule over them. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul. Uh, then God removed Saul. God gave them the King David. Uh, all of this is God's actions throughout their history. And then God said that one of David's descendants would rule forever over all nations. And Paul says, God has brought to us in our day a savior in Jesus, just as he promised. You can't miss it over and over. Paul is emphasizing the activity of God in human history. God has been at work over these thousands of years to bring all of this about. And then the climax of the sermon is verse 30, when Paul says, but God raised him from the dead. Paul understands that God is the unseen hand working and moving all of human history towards Christ's death and resurrection. And God is not done there. And here's where I want to circle back to Psalm 2, because we find out in Psalm 2 that not only did God orchestrate everything before Jesus, uh, to, to bring about that time when Christ would come and die for our sins and rise again. But God is also orchestrating history now and into the future. God is continuing to move behind the scenes in our world until all of humanity one day will be in submission to Christ. Psalm 2, beginning with verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. And against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we have wicked rulers and kings of the earth here plotting against God and against his anointed, which refers to Christ. They're plotting against him. They're going on attack against Jesus. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So there's the prophecy that Paul says is talking about the resurrection. 
So the kings of the rulers of the earth, they're plotting against Jesus. They kill him. And all the while, God is laughing at their attempt to stop his purposes. God raises Jesus back from the dead and sets him up as king. And verse 8 says, Ask of me, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The Great Commission wasn't theoretical. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And he meant it. He meant for it to actually take place. All the nations being discipled to serve Jesus. He expects us to do it. And we will. Might take a few thousand more years, I don't know, but we'll get there. Because just like God was at work in the Old Testament, orchestrating all of these events and bringing it to Christ, God didn't stop working after the resurrection of Jesus. He's still accomplishing his purposes in the world. He is bringing the world into submission to Christ through the spread of the gospel. All the ends of the earth, he says, will belong to Christ. The nations will be his. And so God is working out his purposes in the world. And he will work that out even through the free choices of humans. We've seen it in the past in the Old Testament. We see it in the death of Jesus. Uh, those who plot against God cannot thwart his plans. God has declared Jesus to be king. He has promised that he will rule forever over all of the nations of the world. And the enemies of God say, no, he won't. We'll kill him. And God laughs because they think that they can stop God from doing what he's going to do. But God wanted them to kill Jesus so that he could raise him from the dead and so that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross could atone for our sins. God builds his kingdom through all of that. He uses it to accomplish his will, even the sinful actions of God-haters. Now, it's very easy for us to get really discouraged as we look around us today in America, especially, you know, look at just kind of zoom into the last 50 years or so, and we think, boy, things seem to be headed in the wrong direction. And I bet if you were a slave in Egypt during those 400 years when Israel was there, I bet it seemed like God wasn't very active in the world then either. 400 years is a long time. Uh, that's, that's how long, if you think 400 years ago, that's when the, the, the pilgrims came to America. Okay, so there may be seasons of time where things are seeming to go very poorly in the world, at least our part of the world. Again, we're very focused on America because that's where we are. But God is still at work behind the scenes. God is restoring the world. He's bringing humanity into submission to Christ. God did the first part of Psalm 2. He raised Jesus from the dead, and he'll do the last part too. Jesus will reign over all the world. His kingdom will continue to spread and increase through the preaching of the gospel until one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Here's another prophecy of this fact from Isaiah. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then here's what Isaiah says of this child who will be born. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
The whole Bible is about Jesus, and all of human history is about Jesus. God is restoring the world that was lost in Eden, and he's bringing it under submission to Christ. And God has declared that Jesus will rule all the nations of the world. Our church is one little piece of that big puzzle. We're seeking to be a part of the advancement of God's kingdom on earth by making disciples of Jesus right here in Gary, Indiana. But make no mistake about it, Jesus will rule over all the ends of the earth. Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell cannot stop it. All of history, all of the history of the world is centered on Jesus Christ. Again, I think that's one of the main themes of Paul's sermons here, uh, to show how the events of the world are not just random. It's not left up to chance. It's not even left up to a human will necessarily. God is working behind all of it. And Jesus is the center of history. That's why our, our time scale, even today, is B.C. and A.D., uh, before Christ, and then A.D. is uh, some Latin phrase, Anno Domini or something. It means in the year of our Lord. It's all focused on Jesus as the center of history. Because everything after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus is the time when Jesus is building his kingdom and his reign. His lordship is spreading and increasing across the world. And everything B.C., before Christ, was leading up to his death and his resurrection. Uh, some people today, by the way, are not very happy with B.C. and A.D. They don't like that Jesus is explicitly mentioned in that, those uh, frameworks of time. And so they, want, they, don't, they, don't want to, they do not want to acknowledge that Jesus is the center of history. So they've, they've proposed uh, that we call it the common era. And before the common era, CE and BCE. Maybe you've seen this. Now, I don't have a problem if you want to use those acronyms. Let's just call it Christ's Empire and before Christ's Empire. That works for me. Uh, because Jesus Christ is the center of history. Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, history is headed somewhere. It's moving toward a day when all people will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And all of humanity will submit to Christ's rule, and he will reign forever. Let's read one final text, Ephesians 1, verse 7. Paul writes of Jesus, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God has appointed Jesus as Lord of heaven and all the earth. He's given him all authority, and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, and every knee will bow in service to him, because God works all things according to the counsel of his will.